0: Okay, I'll pray, and then we'll get started here. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. We thank you that through the death, resurrection, and ascension of your son, Jesus, you have washed us thoroughly from our iniquity and cleansed us of our sin. We are grateful that you have anointed us with your spirit when we were baptized, and to your bride, the church, We pray that that same spirit will open our hearts and minds to learn from your written word this morning. We pray that your enemies and their children will be dashed against the rock, who is your son, Jesus, that they may repent of their wickedness and trust in you alone for their salvation. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. All right, so a few weeks back when I started Uh, this series on Leviticus, uh, I mentioned that Leviticus has a far reach. I said that it reaches all the way into the book of Revelation, and we find it in other books of the Bible. And uh, today, I'm hoping to show you how it reaches back to uh, the book of Genesis uh, in a way that we haven't really seen uh, so far, Uh, at least not in in the sort of particular... um, microscopic kind of way that we'll see it today. And so my goal is to try to is uh, it's twofold. One, introduce us to the fall narrative. Most of us are familiar with that, but it never hurts to hear it again. Uh, I want to point out a few things about it. This part of the talk will be things you've heard before uh, about how we're re-entering Eden again. Um, ultimately through the death resurrection and ascension of christ Uh, that's all of us all the old testament saints that's how we're entering eden again through christ's death and resurrection on our behalf Um, he is our substitute so we'll we'll see some of that and then we're going to focus in on genesis chapter 4. this is the narrative of cain and abel and someone came up a few weeks back and was like hey what, what do you think's going on with you know this very early sacrifice in the bible it was something like this i don't remember exactly what was said but what do you think is going on with this very early sacrifice in the bible with cain and abel god accepts abel and his sacrifice but he rejects cain and his sacrifice what's the story here and so uh, i thought it was a great question i have a few things to say about it and i think um, the book of leviticus actually helps us get clear on why and we're also pick up some of the book of Hebrews, which is sort of the New Testament book of Leviticus in some sense. Uh, But we'll look at Leviticus. We'll see how Leviticus informs Genesis 4 and helps us understand maybe why Abel's uh, and his sacrifice were accepted, uh, but Cain and his sacrifice were rejected. So that's the big picture. That's the overall goal uh, today or goals. So Um, As I suggested in my opening talk a few weeks back, the sacrificial events of the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, right, you've heard this before, um, stand at the very heart of the book of Leviticus. And so it just turns out, since that's at the center of the Pentateuch, uh, well, then the Day of Atonement stands at the very center of the Pentateuch. But the question is, why? Why do we see sacrifice at the heart of Leviticus? ultimately at the heart of the Pentateuch itself? Why do we see it uh, as being this common thing that so many biblical figures, especially the patriarchs participate in? Why are they offering sacrifices to God long before God commands his people Israel to do this? You ever wonder why? Well, we're gonna find out. I I hope, I think I'm gonna be able to say something about that today. Uh, And part of the answer to that is gonna be found in uh, Genesis 2. Uh, through four, and so we're going to look at Genesis 2:15 through 24, and then, and these are on your handouts as well as up here. Uh, we'll we'll jump in and go through the entire chapter of Genesis 3. So let's look at Genesis 2:15 through 24, and I should probably pull my Bible out because I just have my. I'm really holy. I have lots of underlining in my Bible, and uh, well, but it does help. All right, so let's go, uh, let's go start in uh, verse 15, whatever. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, And brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called every living creature that was its name the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds and to the uh, of the heavens and to every beast of the field but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh Keep that in mind. They were naked. If you're naked, and, I, and I'm, I'm not asking you to, for the response genitals, so don't say that. But if you're naked, what's sort of an, an obvious thing that's exposed? And I'm not, I mean, it's just, you remember uh, Bart Simpson. Hey man, I can see your. stretch marks. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's the thing that holds those, those uh, beautiful stretch marks that are a testimony to, uh, uh, the blessing and uh, of creation and the fall, but uh, your skin, your skin is showing. Okay. So your skin is showing um, if, if you're naked, right? In a, in a very, in a way that it's not showing when you're wearing clothes, it's you're fully exposed. Um, just keep this in mind because uh, Adam and Eve, they were both naked. Their skin was exposed and they didn't have any shame at this point with their skin being exposed. That, that, that will come up maybe later this week. If not, I'll probably mention it next week when we, start, when we actually get into Leviticus 1 and we start talking about the nature of atonement and in particular what atonement, at least in part, is and that's covering. So anyway, let's keep moving. So Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God actually say you shall not eat of, the tree, uh, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. Pause. Going back to the previous chapter, um, notice that Eve, she knows... Uh, at least something of what God has said about trees and eating fruit in the garden, right? Who do you think told her this? I'm just Yeah, someone tell me why you think Adam. Yeah. Yeah, I wish this was up here. But if you go back to to the previous page, um, the uh, Adam, he's alone in the garden. Eve isn't there. God gives when we, we when I, I'm going to use this phrase sacramental eating. What I mean by that is eating unto life or eating unto death. Okay, God gives Adam the instructions for sacramental eating. Okay, you can eat of these trees in the garden and you can live. If you eat of this tree, you're surely going to die. He gives Adam that information and that he also tells Adam, this is where he tells Adam to do his priestly duties of guarding and keeping or serving the garden. And then he populates the garden with animals. And then he populates the garden with Eve. Adam's supposed to guard Eve. She's a proper part of the garden. She's superior to the animals because she is made in God's image and the animals aren't, but she is a part of the garden that Adam is supposed to guard. Okay. Um, this is one of the reasons we, uh, when I say we, uh, at least the official position of our diocese is that, uh, women cannot be ordained to the presbyterate. They cannot be, uh, elders or, or, um, uh, uh, pastors, so to speak, um, in, in our diocese. That's the role of a man to lead the liturgy and to, uh, guard and shepherd the flock. Okay, the bride of Christ, the Eve. So all of this is rooted in Genesis. And I think this is why Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 2. He mentions that Adam was created first and then Eve. And that's why women are to remain silent. I think this is just, we're not going to, get to do a whole lesson on this, but silent with respect to the uh, uh, elder teaching function that we have laid out in Scripture. Um, but, We'll we'll maybe talk about this at some other point, but this is relevant in some sense for why you find nothing but male priests in uh, in the book of Leviticus and throughout the Old Testament. They're in a garden sanctuary. They're guarding it. OK, they're leading the liturgy. They need to be men. Um, OK, so we'll keep going. Um, Eve knows about this, and this is because Adam was supposed to teach her. He had that teaching role and his teaching role is a part of his guarding role. having, in the previous chapter, been told not to by God himself. This is a tragic and rebellious thing that's just taken place. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord uh, Lord God among the trees of the garden, The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And if you go read 1 Timothy, she's not wrong. She was deceived. There's something different, it seems, in the biblical text about what Eve did compared to what Adam did. Adam's offense is greater. We'll keep going. Well, I'll mention that in the talk in a little bit. Verse 14, next page for you. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, he shall, but he shall rule over you. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay. So, now that we're acquainted with some of Genesis 2 and some of Genesis 3, I want to say a few things about this. So there are four major ideas I I want to bring out in uh, Genesis 3. First, it's just obvious from even a cursory reading of Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. That's obvious. Second, their disobedience, especially Adam's disobedience, led to them being exiled from the garden. And because the garden was both a holy place where God dwelled, I mean, he walked with them there, and as we saw last week was also on a mountain, we need to recognize that Adam and Eve were exiled from God's holy mountain. And as we also discussed last week, that lays out an important theme or becomes an important theme throughout the rest of the Bible, because we we find in various places in Scripture the people of God returning to his mountain. And the psalmist asks in Psalm 24, 3, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? Being exiled from God's holy mountain has with it a devastating consequence. It means that Adam and Eve will no longer be in God's presence, at least not in the way they were when they were in the garden. Being removed from God's presence is at the same time being removed from one's very source of life. Our God is just by nature uh, life okay? He's, he's living. He, no one, no thing can take God's life from him. It's in his nature to exist. You Thomists out there will like that. Uh, for our first parents, uh, and so it is with many humans today, being exiled from God's holy mountain is a death sentence. I say many humans today because I believe that we, we are redeemed. We aren't exiled um, in the fullest sense anymore. We've been brought to Mount Zion, the author of Hebrews tells us Uh, and I think in large part that happens here on Sunday mornings this is an early dim expression of uh, the what's coming in the eschaton when we worship on Sunday mornings so um, being exiled from God's holy mountain is a death sentence and Paul says this in Romans 512 it was through Adam's trespass that sin and death entered the world this is why I said there was something different Eve is not Eve was deceived Adam committed what you might call a high-handed sin in Old Testament language. Because of this, I think it's right to say that being exiled from God's holy mountain is one way of talking about humanity's fundamental problem. And so Genesis 3 sets that problem before our very eyes. We are alienated from God's life-giving presence and also um, alienated from one another in some sense. So let me recap The first thing is that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And the second thing that I pointed out here so far is that they've been exiled from God's holy mountain. The third thing I want to point out is that after the fall, God provided atonement for Adam and Eve. And he did this by slaughtering an animal and using its skin to cover them. Many commentators on the book of Leviticus note that the word often translated as atonement throughout the Old Testament means at least covering. And I've said this before, it has a much richer meaning. It's going to mean something like ransoming someone from... Let's just say death, a terrible situation. It's also going to carry with it a meaning of uh, purging someone of wickedness and sin. And at least those three things. Um, As early as Genesis 3, then we see God providing atonement for his creatures. Instead of killing them, he forgives them on the basis of sacrifice. It's going to be, that's an important part of our talk today. He forgives them on the basis of sacrifice. And this leads to the fourth uh, and last thing I want to say about this passage, and that is that the cherubim and their flaming sword, have you ever wondered why they're there in the text? Why, why, Why would God put this angel or angels there and this flaming sword that's moving every way? Is that some incidental feature of Genesis 3? I don't think so. I think that the cherubim and their flaming sword that guard the way to the garden and the tree of life, they reveal to us two things. First, it reveals humanity's fundamental problem that after the, uh, after the fall, they're alienated from God, they can't get back into God's presence in the garden. But second, it provides us a clue as to how humanity is going to get back into the garden again. This is how Peter Lightheart uh, summarizes humanity's fundamental problem after the fall. I think this is a really great uh, way of putting it. It's on your next slide. The message of the cherubim and flaming sword is clear. If you want to eat the fruit of the tree of life, you'll have to slip past the cherubim, but they're hard to slip past. Cherubim are full of eyes, watching in every direction all the time. He gets that description from the book of Ezekiel. Try slipping past that, he says. (laughs) Inside Eden are all of God's gifts. He offers life. He offers the wisdom of the tree of knowledge. He is present in Eden. You can find all the treasures later deposited in the ark. Food, word, a shepherd. I think by shepherd there he's referring to Aaron's staff that had budded. The only catch is that you can't get in without being killed. Stay out, <clears throat> and you can't get to the tree of life, so you die. You try to get in, and the cherubim kill you, <laughs> so you die. Your situation looks pretty hopeless. Then and that was more of a that was a kind of a quote paraphrase. You know, I just I talk through these quotes sometimes. But that's the end of Lightheart's. Um, quote. So the question is, what is it going to take to get back to the garden and to get back into fellowship with the life-giving God? And the answer in short is sacrifice. It's going to take death, but not just death. We focus on death a lot uh, as Christians and evangelicals, but um, we also have to talk a lot about life. We've got to talk about resurrection because once you die, you have to be resurrected on the other side of the gate that's being guarded. The flaming sword at the gate of the garden gives us a brief glimpse of what will be developed in greater detail in the book of Leviticus. The flaming sword Yahweh placed at the entrance of the garden is an instrument of sacrifice. That sword cuts up the flesh of the animal that is substituted for the worshiper. While the flame, the fire of Yahweh, transforms that flesh into smoke so that it can reach beyond the gate of Eden into God's presence as a pleasing aroma, the kind of aroma that turns away God's wrath. You see um, a description of this. Uh, I'm going off script here a little bit, but you get uh, after the flood, Noah offers uh, an, an Ola sacrifice. Uh, an Olah sacrifice is the it's an ascension offering. It's the very first offering uh, sacrifice talked about in the book of Leviticus. And we're going to talk about that all, all of next week and probably the following week. Uh, it's the foundational sacrifice um, in the Pentateuch um, because it's the foundational sacrifice of Leviticus. And, um, but uh, Noah offers this uh, after landing on Mount Ararat. He offers an ascension offering. And it's only then that Yahweh's wrath is turned away um, from him and his family, the only human creatures uh, still in existence at this point. So this pleasing aroma is one that turns away god's wrath it brings peace between god and man so that they can dwell together on his holy mountain and so this is an early picture of how god will finally make humans at one with him again it's an early picture of atonement and an atonement that covers guilt and shame and turns away god's wrath so uh, on account of a perfect substitute so remember i talked about guilt and shame let me check my time here okay I'll just be very brief about this. Um, So uh, I I don't have all these references with me, but if you go uh, look at the concepts of flesh being exposed and shame, often they're associated in in the Old Testament. And so um, uh, shame is not something that uh, existed pre-fall. Okay, it exists after the fall, after humanity's rebellion against God. And so I think part of the uh, benefit of atonement is that in uh, part of why God is covering Adam and Eve is to get rid of the shame from having their sinful flesh exposed to one another in the world, okay? So uh, that's good news for all of us. Jesus Christ is our atonement. Uh, he's our covering. And so uh, for all of the embarrassing and, 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 and not just silly, we, we're so quick to say this about ourselves, like, oh, I was younger, I did some silly things. When really, if we're being honest, I mean, some of us might say, when I was younger, I did some pretty vile and wicked things. Well, the good news of Jesus Christ is that the shame that washed over you when you were in those turbulent waters of unbelief, well, that gets washed away in Jesus' blood. So, uh, all right, let's keep going here. So, Another quick summary, I suspect, is in order, so let me do that. Uh, man's fundamental problem is that he sinfully rebelled against God, and he's now exiled, separated from God's life-giving presence. But in his mercy, God's provided a way for humans to enter into his life-giving presence again in Eden. And that way is sacrifice. And As you might remember, the last section of Genesis 3 that we read a moment ago, it ends with sacrifice. It ends with God sacrificing on behalf of Adam and Eve, and providing them a covering. And it's interesting that Genesis 3 ends with sacrifice and that Genesis 4, the next chapter, has sacrifice as its centerpiece. That is the theme of Genesis 4. And so I want to talk about Genesis 4 now. Let's look at at that passage. And we'll just do the first 16 verses. Here we go. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Okay, so the first thing you've got human beings doing is having children. God hasn't given up on humanity, even though they've rebelled against him. They still get to live in that creation blessing of being fruitful and multiplying, okay? Eve said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Abel. Now, listen to this. So the first thing mentioned is... Uh, Procreation, the very next thing mentioned. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering. It's a minkah. It's a a tribute offering. Um, But the point is they bring offerings to God. They bring sacrifices. So Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, excuse me, is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And by the way, he was his brother's keeper because he's the eldest brother. He should have had Adam died and not been in the picture. That's just what would have happened in the ancient world. Cain would have been his brother's keeper. So, yes, he was his brother's keeper. Cain's deluded um, or a liar both. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Sorry, I just I'll just briefly say this just crossed my mind. The the blood of these substitute animals goes down um, the the altar in Leviticus and pulls up around it. Um, Anyway, and you get this picture in Revelation of that being the voice of martyrs anyway. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any uh, any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Just a brief word on exile. Humanity has been exiled from God's holy mountain. They had to go east out of the entrance. And now humanity has again fallen into sin. uh, And they're going east again. Um, so going east is going away from God's presence, and going west again is going into God's presence. We've talked about this, but here's another instance of that. And remember, when the sacrifices are brought into the tabernacle, they're brought in a westward direction. All right, so let's talk about this gate liturgy. Why am I calling this a gate liturgy? One, because that's a phrase I picked up from Michael Morales, and it uh, sounds cool, uh, but uh, no, it's a uh, I'm calling it a gate liturgy, and I think he calls it a gate liturgy, because the idea is that uh, there's a gate, the gate of Eden is, uh, is being guarded, and we need to get past it. It's our, it's our fundamental problem in life. And I think Cain and Abel are here um, doing what they're doing, acknowledging that to some degree, that is offering sacrifices. I think we should picture them as offering sacrifices right, side, uh, right outside of that gate of Eden. They want to get back in. Well, at least one of them does. <clears throat> so we're told that Cain, the elder son, brought, fr- uh, brought fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. This is uh, verse 3, and that's the NIV's rendering, fruits of the soil. While his younger brother, Abel, brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. It's not an accident that it's the younger brother um, who is faithful in this case. We see that pattern developed in Scripture as well. The text then tells us that God is quote, that, that, uh, that God, uh, quote, looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And that's verse 5. And so for many Bible readers, it's a bit puzzling why God would reject Cain's sacrifice, but accept Abel's. What's, what's wrong with Cain's? And while the text of Genesis doesn't tell us why God judges Cain the way he does and Abel the way he does, I think we can make some educated Uh, conclusions or draw some educated conclusions about it by looking at other passages of scripture okay i think ultimately the book of hebrews gives us an answer to this question but the book of leviticus um, helps us put some flesh on the bones so the broader biblical context of genesis 4 shows us that ultimately (coughs) abel was a man of faith so there's that's the, the simple answer abel's sacrifice was accepted because he was a man of faith while cain was not a man of faith and so his sacrifice wasn't accepted Um, What I'm going to try to suggest or show you today is that Abel's offering, his offering was a confession of reliance upon God alone for salvation, while Cain's offering was a rejection of that confession, and confessions are based on faith. And so if, if Cain's rejecting the confession, he's rejecting the faith upon which the confession is based. Does this make sense? So this is ultimately why God judged Abel and his accepted Abel and his uh, offering, but rejected Cain and his offering because Abel offered his in faith, and Cain offered his in unbelief. Okay, does this make sense? I'll try to flesh this out a bit. So the first thing to point out is that in offering sacrifices to God, Cain and Abel were following one of them more faithfully than the other, a pattern that was set forth by God Himself. We talked about how God performed a sacrifice and clothed Adam and Eve with that sacrifice. And as we keep reading the Bible beyond Genesis, we see that God commanded his people, the Israelites, to continue sacrificing animals by cutting them into pieces and then burning them on the altar of the tabernacle. And this was done so that those sacrifices, as I've told you before, could be translated into smoke and ascend as a pleasing aroma into God's presence above the Ark of the Covenant. God used Israel's sacrificial system to teach them various things about his relationship with fallen humanity and how he would save his people from sin and death. As a normal part of Israel's sacrificial rites, before the animal was killed, cut up, and placed on the altar, the Israelite worshiper would lean one of uh, his hands on the head of the animal. We mentioned this in passing previous weeks. And this was the the way that the worshiper identified himself or herself with the unblemished animal being offered. Another appropriate translation for the word unblemished would be uh, blameless. That's the way it's translated when applied to human beings throughout the Old Testament. So in identifying with the animal that they uh that was a uh, that they were offering they were essentially confessing the israelite worshiper and bringing that animal laying their hand on its head they were they were making a confession if they were offering this in faith and this would be something like their confession quote this perfect unblemished animal that's about to have its flesh cut up and burned so that it can ascend into to god's heavenly throne room well this animal represents me okay that would basically be their uh, a part of their confession Leviticus 1, 3 through 4 makes this clear. And this is what, uh, uh, what it says here. If his offering, uh, this is from Leviticus 1, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. <coughs> he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So in having the Israelites identify with these unblemished animals, these unblemished substitutes, God was teaching his people that it was only through the death of a perfect, a blameless substitute on their behalf that they'd be accepted back into the garden to live in his life-giving presence. Okay, that's one thing that the sacrificial teaching or the sacrificial system is teaching the Israelites. But God was teaching them much more than that, and this is something we can't We can't miss, God was teaching his people that he would be the one to provide the substitutionary sacrifice that they so desperately needed. In Leviticus 17.11, God reminds his people that the sacrifices by which they draw near to him ultimately come from him. Of your own, have we given you? We say this every Sunday morning. This is what Uh, verse uh, 11 says of chapter 17 in Leviticus, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you. I've given you this life on the altar to make atonement for your souls. That's what God tells the people of Israel. I've done this, but aren't they the one bringing it? Yes, but it's ultimately God who gives this for atonement for them. The atoning work involved in sacrifice is God's work and not man. So when an Israelite genuinely, that is in faith, brought a sacrifice to the tabernacle, he was offering, in in offering his sacrifice, in offering his sacrifice, he was confessing that he was a sinner, that he was blemished, he was in need of a perfect and unblemished or blameless substitute, and that God was providing that substitute for him so that he could be forgiven and enter back into Eden again. Okay. That was the confession that was supposed to be happening if someone brings a sacrifice in faith. So there's something important floating around all of this that uh, I need to make sure that I'm clear about. A person who brought sacrifices to the tabernacle in the Old Testament, they either did so in faith or in unbelief. If they brought a sacrifice in faith, then in the act of bringing his sacrifice, an Israelite worshiper was simultaneously confessing his need for the substitute he brought and professing trust or hope in God's provision for him in that substitute. And this is important because we have to understand that any human throughout all of history that's ever been saved has been saved solely by by God's grace through faith and God's promises given to them as a gift. People under the old covenant were not saved by works or bringing sacrifices alone. For those who were faithful, faith was present in their offerings so faith is an embodied reality. It's as Luther told us a long time ago in his commentary in the book of Romans, faith is a living and active thing. It just, you don't, it doesn't have to ask, I'm paraphrasing, it doesn't have to ask if good works need to be done, it just already does them and then only later inquires about them maybe. I think Luther would tell us that good works are necessary for salvation. Good works are necessary for salvation but they are not the necessary foundation for salvation. They follow from a heart that's been made new by God's grace alone. You know, Luther uses all kinds of illustrations for this. He talks about good works being something like the light that comes from the sun, right? The sun just is what it is and it puts forward um, its light. A good tree just produces good fruit. That's just what it does by nature. And this is the picture we have of ourselves in Scripture, these new covenant promises of Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 in particular. We've been given new hearts. The heart in the Bible is the control center of the human person. God's changed our natures, right? And so out of this new nature, just of necessity flows good works. Uh, I also believe that our good works, our righteousness, uh, is hidden from us just as our sin. So, we, Just as we don't know how sinful we are, Because our lives are ultimately hidden with Christ in God, we don't know how righteous we are either. And that might seem strange. It doesn't seem like a very humble thing to say, but it's humble if it's truthful. And that's what Scripture teaches. And that's good news, by the way, if you didn't know. You're more righteous than you know you are. Okay, so let's... uh, uh, I just want to say this, it would not have done for an Israelite to say that he or she had faith and then, you know, had no need of bringing sacrifices uh, to the tabernacle. That wouldn't have worked. Failing to bring a sacrifice or bringing the wrong sacrifice, that's an act of unbelief. That's just what unbelief or lack of trust looks like. Okay, so let's go back to Cain and Abel for just a moment. If we read the text of Genesis 4 closely, we'll see that Abel appears... <clears throat> to have brought sacrifices to the Lord that look a lot like the sacrifices um, the Israelites were required to bring to the tabernacle. Genesis 4.4 tells us that Abel brought not only animals, but he brought the firstborn of his flocks. This parallels God's command to Israel to give to him, that is to sacrifice to him the firstborn of their flocks. You find this command in Exodus 13, and Deuteronomy 15. And in addition to bringing the firstborn of his flocks, Abel also gave to the Lord the fat portions of those animals. And this parallels the teaching of Leviticus 3, that the fat of a sacrifice is always God's portion. And this is what Leviticus three sixteen says, And the priest shall burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. So given that uh, Cain's... Uh, excuse me, Abel's sacrifice appears to be an early expression of Israel's later sacrificial cultists. This ties Abel's confession to the confession of a faithful Israelite bringing their sacrifices in the tabernacle or to the tabernacle. I think what we're supposed to see is that I think an ancient Israelite reader would read Genesis 4 and say, oh, abel's bringing sacrifices a lot a lot like our sacrifices well i know what our sacrifices mean they mean that well we're unclean but god's providing this blameless substitute for us so that on behalf of that substitute we'll be able to get into eden and by the way god's the one providing us that substitute we're not providing it ourselves that's a confession of faith of trusting god his provision for them and so I think that's how an ancient Israelite would read Genesis 4. They would say, oh, Abel has the same confession and faith that I have. Cain's sacrifice, though, stands in contrast to Abel's in that it is not a bloody animal sacrifice, and therefore it's not capable of providing a substitute for him. Animals are the substitutes. Grain isn't a substitute. Anything else that's offered on the altar, as far as I know, is not a substitute human beings but the animals are but because he didn't bring a bloody animal sacrifice well that sacrifice wasn't able of providing atonement for him there was no there were no skins to provide atonement to cover up his sinful flesh his now corrupted sinful flesh that it was full of shame moreover he said to have he's only said to have brought fruits of the soil as a sacrifice he's not described as bringing the first fruits of his crops and that's important because in Leviticus 23 we read that Israel the Israelites were supposed to bring the first fruits of their harvest to Yahweh so Abel's sacrifice tracks pretty nicely with the sacrifices in Leviticus and elsewhere in the Pentateuch and Cain's just doesn't at all on pretty much every score and again just to reiterate this point because Abel's sacrifice tracks what's happening a faithful sacrifice commanded by God in Leviticus I think his sacrifice should be understood as um, the having the same confession and therefore faith that that confession is based on the same confession of faith that a faithful Israelite sacrifice would be based on does that make sense sense? okay all right so um, I think the ultimate answer to why Abel was accepted, and his sacrifice was accepted, and Cain's wasn't as Abel was just a man of faith. He came offering his sacrifice in faith. Abel was, as a a faithful ancient Israelite would have been, uh, he was confessing through his substitutionary animal sacrifice that Yahweh would one day provide a perfect substitute, a perfect sacrifice that would allow him access to God's presence in the garden. Um, Cain, and as much as he rejected God's prior example established with Adam and Eve in Eden of an appropriate or faithful sacrifice, he did not share Abel's confession and faith. And so the author of the book of Hebrews, and you'll have this um, on one of your slides, Hebrews 11, the author of the book of Hebrews tells us straightforwardly that Abel was a man of faith and that this is why. His sacrifice was accepted. This is what he says in uh, verses four through five. By faith, Abel offered to God, by faith, Abel offered to God a, a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. It's the same word for uh, justification in some form of the kaiosune. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Uh, the, uh, I think one thing that's interesting about this phrase that, that, that though he died, he still speaks is it's another way of saying he's not actually dead. He did die, but he's not dead. Dead people don't talk. He's alive. He's alive because he he trusted that Yahweh would resurrect him on the other side of the gate of Eden. All right. So um, the author of the book of Hebrews, uh, uh, well, let me just say this. So, we don't have time to read Hebrews 11, but just go and and read that chapter, okay? And notice that Abel, Abraham, all of the Old Testament saints, what is it about? What is Hebrews 11 about? It's about how they're all looking forward to going somewhere. They're looking forward to going to the city of God, essentially. Go Go read that chapter. That's what it's about. And so this is one of the reasons I think we can say this is what was going on in Abel's sacrifice. Okay, Abel, what, what did Abel have faith in? He had faith that God had provided a way for him to enter into Eden again, into uh, uh, Mount Zion, the holy city, the one that they all looked at and accepted from afar. That's why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was rejected. So anyway, I hope that what I've said here helps us set the sacrifices that we're going to be exploring. Starting next week, we're going to get into Leviticus 1, and uh, we're going to actually go through Leviticus 1 almost verse by verse, um, which might sound treacherous, but I'm going to try to make it interesting and fun. And uh, I hope, though, what we've said so far helps give us some big categories, uh, themes, motifs, whatever you want to call it. Uh, within which to think about these sacrifices and ultimately within which to see Jesus in these Old Testament sacrifices. So uh, that's all I've got for you today. If you have questions, I'll be happy to stay a bit longer and answer them so, or try. So. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.